This talk was given by Michelle Sege Spark at Zen Mountain Monastery. Sege is a lay senior in the Mountains and Rivers Order. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you would like to make a donation, please visit our website at zmm.mro.org slash donate. Thanks for your support. Good afternoon. Living in the Saha world, the world of samsara, may we remember our intentions in practice to see who we truly are, and may we dedicate our efforts to all beings. And we say these words, hopefully in session to ourselves, to help us uh, not obsess too much about ourselves and remember um, the, the sense of what, what we're seeing about ourselves and that we belong to everyone. There may be phrases in something like this sentence that sticks us and makes us feel stuck and the word all beings is something that uh, I remember years ago hearing in a different context, and I got really stuck on it. I had been invited to um, Menlo, which is a Tibetan retreat center nearby, uh, run by Robert Thurman and his wife, Nena. And they had a Rinpoche staying there, leading practice sessions and ceremonies. And it was something new for me. It was many, many years ago. And it's in the woods, and it's beautiful. And there was just a small group of us. And we had a short meditation with the Rinpoche. And he was all smiles. We were all smiles. And he said that the river of samsara is what we live in. And samsara, if for those of you not familiar with a term, is the cycle of rebirth, the habitual coming back over and over again because we cannot cut off our habitual energies of actions and karma that create the suffering for us and everyone else. So he said the river of samsara, and I perked up because I like rivers, And he said that we're swimming, and I like swimming. (laughs) So I was like, okay. And we're with all beings. Oh, maybe. But then he said, you, your mother, and all beings. And that was like a wall went up because I had the worst relationship with my mother at the time. And that was very painful to hear. I didn't want to be with my mother in this river of samsara. (laughs) And I knew that all beings meant everybody, and I knew that it included her, and I just couldn't go there. And so that scene of all smiles and peace and comfort just dripped out the drain. And I never forgot it. I never forgot it. And so there may be these phrases or gestures or encounters in practice that we have over the years to stay with us and stick us. And so a few years I took it up again. I said, okay, things have 
work themselves out in my family. I'm much older. People are dead. Um, relationships have been worked out to some extent. What about all these beings? Are they? And, and what do they look like? And because I'm a visual person, even though I don't see well, I picture everything. And so I was starting to see beings, and I started to make these drawings of all the beings. And I did this project, and it was very fruitful, and I thought I could put it down again. And then last week, someone wanted to heal me and took me to another Rinpoche who said something else. And I, maybe I misheard the first time. And he said that it's not that you, your mother, and all beings, it's that every being, every being that's in this river of samsara with you has been your mother, is your mother, and has taken care of you and shown you compassion and love and helped raise you, every being. And he said, even the tiniest insect. And I went, whoa, I'm not going there with ticks. (laughs) (laughs) So again, a wall went up, but, you know, it was a small wall. (coughs) And he said that to to therefore turn and cultivate ourselves so that we can be like these beings that have shown us compassion and shown us love, and that we may then be that, those beings in the river together. And that, that kind of put a, a closure there for me, I think. You never know. But there's something about that There's something about getting stuck on something in practice. And it can be a koan for years. It can be a relationship in the sangha or the teacher. It can be an idea, a viewpoint, anything. And I wanted to share um, one from the Pali Canon called the Shorter Discourse of Malianka Vada. Um, because I thought it was kind of a touching story. Um, I'm going to read some of it, uh, because the language also is, is very old. Um, the Pali Kanans are said to be the written down many hundreds of years, memorized teachings and encounters of the Buddha with his disciples. So they have a little bit of uh, ancient flavor. So it starts, Thus I have heard that on one occasion the Blessed One was staying in this Savati at Jetta's Grove. Um, And so during the rains retreat, they would all gather and everybody would find a spot in the woods and do a little retreat and maybe sit for a while and then they might gather in the evening and so forth. And Venerable Malianka Bhada, a monk in the Sangha, um, was alone in seclusion. He was doing zazen. And this train of thought 
arose in his mind. First, he says, these positions that are undeclared, set aside, discarded by the Blessed One, and then he has a long list of these positions. I'm going to just give you a taste of what they are, so we don't, because they're repeated many times. That's part of the uh, memorization, I think, and helping people to convey the teaching over years, hundreds of years. The cosmos is eternal. The cosmos is not eternal. The cosmos is finite. The cosmos is infinite. The soul and the body are the same. The soul is one thing and the body another. After death, Adatagatha exists. After death, Adatagatha does not exist. And then he goes on. Both exist and not exist. Neither exist, not exist. Um, and then he says, I don't approve. I don't accept that the Blessed One has not declared them to me. I'll go and ask the Blessed One about these matters. If he declares to me that this is true or that is true or not true, and he goes through the long list again, so he's obsessing, right? <laughs> Haven't we done that before? <laughs> then I will live the holy life under him. If he does not declare to me, then I will renounce the training and return to the lower life. It's an either or ultimatum, I think. And how many times do we have these conversations in our minds with important people in our lives? I mean, too numerous to count. But, you know, I'm not just uh, putting down what he's asking because these are questions that we might wonder about. And they naturally would come up in Sazen, like, what, what happens after I die? And, um, you know, is, things just go on and on. I know what the science says now that I'm modern, but, you know, w what keeps going on and on? Um, and I feel like I have a body, and I feel like I have a self, but I hear that I don't have a self. I mean, this is all very confusing. Um, and we don't know what the next sangha in the next town was doing and asking. There may have been a person of great um, teaching who was saying that he would die and take everyone to heaven and there's an afterlife. There may have been teachings like that. There certainly are today. So we don't know, you know. We don't know what was prompting these questions. We don't know his attachment to them. We don't know his emotional state other than the fact that it was hugely important, important enough for him to set up, if the Buddha, blessed one, answers me, I'll stay. If he doesn't answer me, either or, whatever he's, you know, he's not even asking, uh, he's not even getting into the argument of whether things are true or not, really. But on the other hand, some of these questions are theoretical in a way. They aren't really to do with his life right then and there. They're after he dies. They're not about like 
how he's living among the Sangha, how he's conducting himself. So in some ways, they're not, you know, here and now. Um, but again, let's be respectful. But we go to our teacher sometimes, and we want to be heard. We want to be heard in a way we want to present it. And we want our teacher to acknowledge and affirm. And we set up these parameters that are very tightly made. And we come into session, and we hope for peace, but we fear that we won't find it. So there's these realms of similarities to what he's going through. I've abandoned my training millions of times, I confess. And it's usually on Thursdays (laughs) of the week that I do a full week. And it's usually around 3.30 in the afternoon. I think that's called samsara, but I'm not really sure. So that happens to us, right? We're just, you know, and we poke at ourselves with the same wound. We magnify it, and it burns us. And in despair, we turn outside something else, someone else, some piece of something. We don't really have the trust that these things happen. With regularity, we can depend that on Thursday at (laughs) 3.30 during session, I'm going to go, what am I doing this for? Why am I here? You know. But um, we don't have control over this mind. It's kind of its own being. Maybe it is all beings. The mind is all beings, and we don't have the control. And we say, I'm out of here. I'm out of here. It's like a favorite saying in our culture. Um, So yes, he's looking for solace of some kind. I get get questions. I write with inmates and I get questions. You know they want to be out of there. And I think I can understand that. I don't have any idea if I really have any clue. But you can tell when they write certain things. I want to be out of here. Will this help me escape my reality? It's so painful. And sometimes it's a shin you get so close to something that's so difficult. You want to be out of here. An old worthy said that this not dealing with, not recognizing, and turning away is like sitting in shit up to your nostrils. I wonder if anybody here knows this old worthy. But here's Malayankavada. He's a monk. He's a monk. He took vows. Shouldn't he be trusting the teacher? He's, shouldn't he be clear? So we have an intention to see clearly, and we offer to dedicate our efforts to all beings. 
Um, by doing this, we release karma. Hopefully, that's a release of our own karma. And we let go of the self, in quotes, but um, if we're challenging and setting up conditions, I don't know. It's not automatic. It's not an automatic given. Just because someone is wearing a certain garb or a certain hat doesn't mean that they're they're there. So there's these obstacles and hindrances, and um, there's a doubt there. He's painted himself into a corner, and he stews. He's doubting the teaching. He doesn't trust the teacher. I'm thinking. I'm thinking this. I'm making a judgment. He's doubting himself, and he's not really looking. He's not really seeing his life. So I'm wondering about, um, you know, in Zen we speak of the three pillars of Zen. Great doubt, great faith, and great determination. And uh, when I first heard great doubt, I said, oh yeah, (laughs) I doubt everything. That's me, I'm a skeptic. But I don't think that's what it is. I don't think that's great doubt. There was a Chinese master, Boshan, 16th century, who wrote exhortations for those unable to rouse the doubt and exhortation to those who are able to rouse the doubt. So I, think, I have a feeling that um, it's more about an open wondering about everything. Like nothing seems solid and everything is flowing. Once you start to see how your mind constructs things and makes things fixed and you run into a wall and it doesn't work anymore and you repeat it and repeat it and repeat it and you start to dismantle all that, maybe you open up a little bit and you start to wonder, what, what is this mind? What is this life? So he says this, In Zen practice, the essential point is to arouse doubt. What is this doubt? For example, when you're born, where do you come from? You cannot help but remain in doubt about this. When you die, where do you go? Again, you cannot help but remain in doubt. Since you cannot pierce this barrier of life and death, suddenly doubt will coalesce right before your eyes. What, and I ask you, um, what is piercing this barrier? What is the barrier? Try to put it down, you cannot. Try to put it away, you cannot. Eventually this doubt will be broken through and you will realize what a worthless notion is life and death. Ha! What a worthless notion is life and death. Ha! (laughs) Another old worthy said, great doubt, great awakening. Small doubt, small awakening. No doubt, no awakening. So is this the doubt of the monk? Is it our doubt, your doubt or mine? Great or small, awake or dead, certain or wondering, wondering, I ask, do you know anything about it? 
Does anyone? Getting back to Melia Gavada. So in the evening, after stewing all day and sitting, he finally gets his dokes on. And he goes to see the Blessed One. And he presents his circling questions, you know, that I mentioned about uh, infinity and, and so forth. And that he puts it this way. If one doesn't know or see whether the cosmos is eternal or not eternal, then in one who is unknowing or unseeing, the straightforward thing is to admit, I don't know, I don't see. If one doesn't know or see whether the after death Adathagatha exists or does not exist, both exists and does not exist, neither exists or does not exist, then in one who is unknowing, unseeing, the straightforward thing is to just admit, I don't know, I don't see. Say, teacher, what do you know? And can't you tell me? It's kind of obnoxious. <laughs> I'm the blessed one. Very cool. <laughs> Did I ever Malyankavada? Monk. Did I ever say or declare any of these things, any of these things that you talk about, to live the spirit that would be necessary to live the spiritual life? In other words, did I ever say that these things were a guarantee to live the spiritual life? No, Lord. Then that being the case, foolish man, who are you to be claiming grievances, making demands of anyone? Who are you? What are you abandoning? What are you abandoning? So it kind of turns it around and points him back to his vow and his intention. Um, and then he goes on to say, Malayankavada, if anyone were to say, I won't live the holy life under the blessed one, as long as he does not declare to me and he goes through the list. He actually goes through the whole entire list. He listened. He heard, okay? I'm not going to go through the list. <laughs> the, meanwhile, the man would die, and those things would still remain undeclared by the Dathagatha. No matter what we ask and want to know, we would still die. And they would remain undeclared by our teaching. And then he tells this story. It's just as if a man were wounded with an arrow thickly smeared with poison. There he is, writhing on the ground, and all his caring mothers in some, the sea of samsara are gathered all around, trying to love and care for him. His friends and companions, his kinsmen and relatives, would provide him a surgeon, a doctor, a nurse, to heal him, to pull out the arrow. And the man would say, I won't have this arrow removed until I know whether the person who wounded me was a noble warrior, a Brahmin, a merchant, or a worker. Until I know what this arrow is made of, 
whether the shaft with which, which I was wounded was wild or cultivated, until I know whether the feathers of this, this shaft with which I was wounded were those of a vulture, a stork, a hawk, a peacock, or another bird. So the Blessed One is pointing out to him the heart of the matter, kind of the wish and demand to know something for sure. And I'm not so, I think that's not quite, I'm not really sure, but it seems to me that Buddhism teaches nothing about certainty except that it, everything's uncertain. Everything's uncertain and changing. And it's, some of the questions have not a lot to do with swimming in this rush of samsaric river. And the, the story of the poison, being shot by a poison arrow, is a way to pierce him and get him to look at his own life right now, as uncertain as it may be. We all want to know what the causes of our karma is and the conditions by which we find ourselves in, the predicaments especially. And most times, this is just not possible. And still, we must deal with the emergency right here, right before us. This is the antidote to the poison arrow. To use our practice this way, all the practices to directly bring us to live. So zazen, liturgy, teaching, sangha practice, dharma practice. And that's what session brings you very close to. And then the Blessed One also um, Comments, Malayankavada, these things you ask are not connected with the goal and are not fundamental to the holy life. They do not lead to disenchantment, dispassion, cessation, calming, direct knowledge, self-awakening, and unbinding. That's why they are undeclared by me. And what is declared by me? This is stress is declared by me. This is the origination of stress, is declared by me. This is the cessation of stress, and this is the path of practice leading to the cessation of stress. There is still birth, aging, there is still death, there is sorrow, lamentation, pain, despair, and distress, whose destruction I make known right in the here and now. Anna has a very happy ending. The Malayankavada decides to stay in the training. He had a real turnabout, I guess. Uh, so Arshuso mentioned for us, urged us to look within instead of to fix on the outside, those kind of questions that are seemingly external.
to be clear about what's internal, what's inside, what's outside. Sometimes uh, those things get like confused or indistinct. That's okay. But to remember to turn inward. And what's great about Sashin is it helps us sort of leave the attachments behind and replace it with things to concentrate on. The forms here we can get attached to, which is kind of wonderful. And hopefully they cultivate us to look at our attachments on the, when we're living our lives. Um, and in that way, you can drop your usual habits of engagement, maybe, and learn to relax a, a bit. Actually relax in session, because there's not much to do. So you can relax your thinking. You don't have to actually conceptualize. There's not a lot to think about or decide. You can relax your perceiving mind, because we're not looking around, right? And um, sometimes when people just pull back, uh, they fill the space. They fill the space with, if you're creative, maybe you have fantasies of various things, vacations, who knows. Um, maybe you make things in your mind um, creatively. Maybe you get anxious and you just start elaborating um, and obsessing. Maybe you just get sleepy. So you may have to make a subtle effort to see which direction you kind of go in in that, in that way and to find the balance so that you can be aware but not hyper-aware, alert but not hyper-alert, not thinking too much, relaxed and upright, relaxed, no tension, and upright at the same time. So these things sort of count, counter the counter levers, kind of. And to remember your vow and intention. It's always very helpful to lessen our self-preoccupations. I came across a, um, a quote from um, a Chinese modern master who lived well into the 20th century um, was very well known in mainland China. Master Su Yan. I'll have to get the right way to say his name for Machong. And he said, When you are one with your practice, concentrating, look into it and penetratingly and observe. That is, to look inside, look backward, look into means to put your mind penetratingly into your concentration. Our minds are used to going outside and sensing things in the outer world. So we're training ourselves to relinquish that and to turn around. In Zazen, reverse this habit and look inside. But before the thought of this ever arises, penetrate into the state before the thought arises and to see what this looks like. It's kind of a slowing down of the mind and allow it to, when it relaxes, 
It's not generating so much. It is to observe from whence the very thought comes to see what it looks like and subtly and very gently penetrate into it. And Shugen Roshi often says, put yourself into it. Put yourself into it, whole body and mind. Hold nothing back. Master Suyun also said that in session, fortunately we can all join this session in meditation practice. This is the place to learn the teaching of non-doing. Non-doing is absolutely nothing to be done or to be learned. No insight, no constructing, no associating. Alas, whatever I can say about nothingness will miss the point. Oh, friends and disciples, if you do not attach yourself to the 10,000 things with your minds, you will find that the life spark will emanate from everything. Oh, friends and disciples, if you do not attach yourself to the 10,000 things with your minds, you will find that the life spark will emanate from everything. And to look within, to realize how impermanent our constructed thoughts are. And that's why all the things in session help us do that. How fleeting, uh, and just getting back to our monk, he had help with that. He had good help with that. Um, And he asked for help with that in a way. Maybe it was a little challenging, but he did ask. He went and he asked his teacher and he listened to look within and see how fleeting our sensations are, to see how changeable the body is. Are we not this person who is pierced through to the marrow by an arrow? I like that, rhymes. The arrow of piercing, piercing the barrier. In the Salatha Sutra, the Buddha speaks of the two darts of pain, the two arrows. And what he speaks of is that um, the uninstructed person, the ordinary person, when shot as if by an arrow, uh, the person would feel the pains of two arrows, even though there's one because he's touched with a feeling of pain and he, he sorrows, he grieves, and he laments and beats his breast, breast and he becomes distraught. So he feels two pains. He doesn't just feel sensation. He feels sensation and the mental pain. And the, he resists it and he obsesses. So when we take something in that's painful, um, that we don't want, and we push it away. It's like 
we're being hit twice. First, we're being hit by the pain that we feel. Maybe it's, it's, this is being physical, but it could be a concept like the difficulty I had with my mother, for, for instance, was an experience that I reviewed. So I took that in, and that's the first pain. And the second pain is the mental machinations of pushing it away, pushing it away. Resist and obsessed. This person who is uh, resisting and obsessing, touched by a painful feeling, they seek sensual pleasure. Why is that? Because the person does not discern any escape from painful feeling aside from sensual pleasure. They do not discern as it is actually present, the origination, passing away, allure, drawback, or escape from that feeling. Therefore, they are joined completely with birth, aging, and death, with sorrow, lamentation, and pains, distresses, and despairs. They are joined, I tell you, with suffering and stress. So, we're in the swamping sea of samsara, like a strong and able swimmer. The arrow of impermanence takes us to the other shore. The open heart is pierced through and through. It floats into the clouds like drifting leaves. So let the love, smiles, and hugs in sangha practice carry us along. Become a hugging philosopher. His arrow hits us deeply always, and always it is our choice, the antidote or the poison. As you sit and focus, notice the space between, the space that grows and grows. Maybe it's not a constant stream you must uphold. Can you turn inward and gently let yourself rest? Last week, snow still lingers. Fallen branches, leaves scattered around, washed out and forlorn. Yearn for the stir in the sky. Streams flow underneath, all blue and green and spectacular. Our bodies run to meet the withered tree blossom of spring. Oh, let us aspire and not expect. Let us sit alive. Let's all do nothing, not a single thing, together. And let us breathe life into Buddha. Thanks so much for listening. The Monastery's quarterly journal, Mountain Record, has a new home at mountainrecord.org. For over 30 years, Mountain Record has been offering spiritual seekers of all faiths a unique journey through words and images. Each quarterly issue delivers a thought-provoking array of classic teachings, contemporary wisdom, stunning photographs, and news from the Mountains and Rivers Order. For more information, to subscribe, or to read our open access articles, visit mountainrecord.org.